Well, we've got a special interview for episode 45 today. We're going to have our guest coming up in just a moment. So I want to thank our sponsor, our Cloud Guru. They are the leader in learning for the cloud, Linux, and other modern tech skills. Hundreds of courses and thousands of hands-on labs. Get certified, get hired, get learning at a cloudguru.com. So today, instead of a bunch of different segments, we're really kind of just doing one thing. Hey, Alex? We are indeed. Yes, we've got Paulus, who is the founder of Home Assistant, on the episode today. And Chris and I talked to him about all sorts of different subjects from how Home Assistant's becoming more turnkey ready through to the ESP Home acquisition. And there's a couple of interesting tidbits about the future in there as well. Well, I don't know if you remember, but you and I chatted back in 2017 on a Linux Action Show special about Home Assistant, what feels like 100 years ago now. <laughs> yeah, no, I do remember. Well, I didn't. Well, I remember it was somebody from Jupiter Broadcasting. I didn't yeah, realize okay. it was you. <laughs> yeah. And man, have things come a long way. So thank you for joining us to catch us up on stuff. I am the happy owner of a Home Assistant Blue device. Love it. Awesome. I put the order in during the live stream, so I got it fairly early. <laughs> and uh, I got to say, you know, months into it, the performance holds up compared to the Raspberry Pi 4. I think it I think it is outperforming the Raspberry. It's I mean, it's a beast. The end two is just like it's amazing. So are there any plans for more expansions in that direction? Um, is that going to be a focus going forward? Because it really seems like a pretty sweet integration. Yeah, so uh, there are definitely plans. Uh, nothing to announce just yet. Um, we, we realized with the N2 Plus, like we, we only made a case, right? So it's, it's just a board. And when people think of home automation, they obviously think of like Zigbee or Z-Wave or Chip or Matter or whatever it's going to be called. And so that's something that we want to... Uh, you know, if we want to address, we want to include that as well. And I think the, you know, the Home Assistant Blue was really like, you know, the the ultimate race car, but it was not very accessible in that the price was not, uh, the price was pretty steep for like, you know, a device that also you needed to add like a Zigbee stick and these kind of things. So I think we are definitely going to look into something as a successor, um, nothing to announce just yet, but it will also be hopefully uh lower priced and more capable uh, out of the gate to be like, you know, used for smart home. Yeah, I can absolutely see how that would be way simpler for new users to get into the space as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, one, when we look at these things, it's not just like, we don't just want to create a box that competes with like Philips U or anything, right? Like we're home assistants. So it needs to be, you know, kind of hackable, playful, open, like it just needs, you know, just like the, the Odroid N2 Plus or the Home Assistant Blue. I mean, you can flash anything on it that you want, right? We, we wouldn't, we're not interested in like building a lockdown box that like will just keep the users out. That is completely understandable, especially now having used one. But so what about guys like me who will always have a use case where I'm going to want to run it on a server? Like here at the studio, we have a server that's doing like a hundred other things. And so running Home Assistant in a container is perfect for the use cases of just controlling studio lights. And we're not really using any integrations and stuff like that. How do you see that user base being addressed in the future? Right now, we have four installation types. Um, we have the, um, the Home Assistant operating system. We have the Home Assistant supervised, the Home Assistant container, and then Home Assistant core, which is just like running it in Python yourself. And all the other three installation approaches all rely on containers. And so they all use the same image. So it's like the core technologies are all very similar. Yeah, it's all the same thing, really. It's well, it, it, the, the only one that's different is core because you know you run it, you maintain your own Python virtual environment. 
The other three are all Docker-based, so it's all the same thing. So those four installation types are pretty much set in stone right now. I think that, you know, if you, in your studio, you can either run the container or you can run a virtual machine with a home assistant operating system. You know, the benefit, of course, of the virtual machine is that you have one-click updates of home assistant. Well, with the container, it really depends on like your container management software, which can be uh, Unrate or Portainer or Synology or whatever. You know, they, that software then has to do the update of the container. I think that's the only real difference. In the end, all of these containers, they all run uh, Alpine, they run um, Python, and we maintain that, right? So we have a big uh, wheel server. We make sure that all the dependencies work and compiled and are just up to date and running. Um, and that's just, you know, a big benefit as a user. And I think that moving forward, you just want to run Home Assistant container, that will be possible. I see. So it's not like it's ever going to go away, but you just feel like there's a lot of benefits to Home Assistant managing the entire stack because of all of the interdependencies. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many moving parts. I think that if you look at our uh, requirements.txt, which is where we define like the Python dependencies, it's like over a thousand. Because each integration comes with its own Python library, which is a requirement we made ourselves. So it's obviously like, (laughs) you know, there's our own guidelines. But, you know, the reason we always do this is that we want integrations to rely on like an SDK. So an SDK is a Python package that is standalone that translates the protocol into like Python objects. And that way, other Python projects, not just Home Assistant, can also use this package, right? So we don't want protocol-specific information inside Home Assistant because we want to make sure that other Python-based home automation systems or just one-off scripts can use these protocols as well. Wow. So it kind of sounds like to me what you guys did as a team is you looked at the kind of, if you will, the, the whole problem and you said, quite frankly, it is easier for us as a team to just do a whole OS than say, uh, you must have considered, we'll bless Ubuntu LTS as the supported home assistant platform and anything else is DIY, but if you want our official way or our official image, it's all Ubuntu-based. Yeah, but the, the problem with that is that your virtual environment uh, that runs Python is going to be, uh, has to be maintained as well. So, I mean, this is, of course, how home assistant started. It was just a Python application that we distributed through PyPI. Sure. And people would run into, like, they would do pip upgrades and then, of course, some people will upgrade from the last release. Some people will update from like six releases ago. And people got stuck all the time. And the way it works with our Docker containers is that we install all the Python dependencies fresh in each container. And so when you update your container, all your old dependencies are thrown away. We make sure you have the latest and greatest and the dependencies all work together. And that way it's, uh, it just works. Yeah, that makes sense. I could see how that also is just much more manageable and supportable by you guys as well. And um, I got to say, you know, on the blue, it's working really great. I kind of am, I'm a user of both use cases, just the core version and the whole OS stack. And uh, I do really like the snapshots. I feel like the more recent updates that have also set it so you can have a snapshot right before you upgrade is brilliant. All that kind of stuff just keeps getting better. Yeah. And I think, you know, when the, the, the features are really driven you know, we look at the way people use Home Assistant and we look at the the issues we see on our forums and on our Discord. And then we just ask ourselves, like, why is this? What can we do to make it easier and better? And we just constantly try to, like, kind of tackle this. And, you know, we're, we're really focused on making Home Assistant easier to use while still also, you know, making sure that our power users, of course, can do their things. And, you know, it's been really paying off. I think that, like, we launched Home Assistant Analytics, like, 
a month ago, two months ago already. Right. And I think like around, we didn't do much promo, but like 45,000 people have opted in. And you can actually see our operating system is like 65% of our users. Oh, okay. I mean, that was pretty unexpected. Like we, we knew it was high. I think, you know, internally we were like, ah, that's probably like 50%, but it's actually 65%. And I, I also understand it because it's just convenience, right? Like if you want to be a system administrator at home, you can be, of course, but if you want to be like, automating your home you can be that too yeah so i mean home assistant's been headed down the more turnkey route for quite a while now and i think hasos is or am i calling it the right thing i'm, I'm still confused by the name change <laughs> um it's been headed down the the turnkey route for quite a while um what else do you have planned in that space i mean there's been a lot of work around automations recently as well as uh some other aspects of of the experience so I think that our goal really like in the longer term is that we want to make sure that a lot of people have access to having like great uh, home automation at home that, you know, t focuses on local control and privacy. And so having home assistant be accessible is important to us. But for example, we've also, uh, you know, the company behind home assistant, my company, Nabucasa, we've also recently acquired ESP Home. Hey, ESP Home is a firmware for uh, ESP devices that runs on a, which is a firmware that can run on a lot of uh, products that come from China, like light switches, lights. And with ESP Home, we are also trying to make it easier for people to get you know, access to devices that work locally and work private and work with Home Assistant. Um, so yeah, our long-term goal is really just to make it accessible to everybody. And I think that launching hardware was a really obvious step. I feel that uh, for a long time, I didn't want to go down that route because logistics, just like all that stuff. But at the end of the day, we were looking at it and we were like, we've been working on making it so much easier to use. But then the first step of instructions is download Azure, download this image and flash it to an SD card. And most people don't even know those words. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That has me thinking about something like, you know, the made for iPhone program. Yeah. It makes me think with, with ESP home in particular, I know it's aimed primarily at hackers and people that want to build and make and solder and all that kind of stuff. But it's got me thinking it's acquisition of ESP home. Why isn't there a made for home assistant program? Well, I think that the, 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 the main thing about made for home assistant is that we don't have an API ourselves, right? Like we always integrate with the other products. I did consider like starting one or like having like at least some certification and more official certification but we see that there's there's not much interest in it in a way that like you know manufacturers will come to us and be like well what's your api we'll integrate and i'm always like no that's not what we want we want you to create an open api we will integrate with it but other projects should also be able to allow it to be integrated with it and then we see a lot of companies be like ah that's not in our interest or you know we we were talking to Ring because, you know, we they wanted to say like, hey, can we get like a partnership going? And then we looked at it and the first step is sign NDA to make sure that you don't expose the APIs. Right. And like, we're open source. This is not going to happen. And the same thing happened to us with Sonos, um, who also was like, yeah, we want to keep it to partners only. It's like, ah, okay, that doesn't work. Oh, that's super frustrating to hear that kind of stuff because some of those companies you listed, you know, Ring and Sonos are, they're, they're big players in this space, and that's that's kind of frustrating to to hear that they're not they're not compatible with an open source ethos yet. Well, their partnerships are not, but I mean, we still integrate with them, right? Right. It's just 
less official because they still have APIs and people have been able to figure out those APIs. And so we will still integrate with them. It's just, if you are a partner, they will make sure it stays working or they will give you a heads up so you can adjust. And that's something we don't have, right? So we sometimes get caught off guard, like some, some brand will change an API, Home Assistant stops working, we have to update our code, ship a hotfix, and it will work again. Which leads me nicely into my next question, which is about the velocity of change. Now, I've been using Home Assistant for a couple of years myself, so I've been through quite a few breaking config changes over that time. I feel like, and this is just anecdotal personal experience, that that experience has gotten better, that the, the pace of change hasn't decreased, but the amount of changes that break stuff, that has decreased significantly from, from my perspective. What things are you doing from you know a home assistant side to make that velocity of change more easy for people to handle? So the, the, the biggest change there, and it was actually, it started out with a policy change and then like it resulted also in code changes. But so there's this thing called config flow. So through the UI, you can set up an integration. And what we said is that we, but this is going to be mandatory moving forward. So it used to be that you could like go into YAML and then, for example, let's say for your Philips U-Bridge, you would say this is the IP address. Um, and then, well, Philips U is maybe a bad example because you would still have to press a button in the UI and was storing some extra data. But for some things, you have to like, here's a username, password, and IP address of a device on my network. But then when the IP address would change, Home Assistant wouldn't work. And Home Assistant couldn't find the new IP address because you had it hard-coded in your configuration files and we're not changing your configuration files. And so those cases we really had to handle uh, through a UI. We had to like say, hey, this is a temporary IP address, but we still have an identifier. So if your Chromecast changes IP address, we can still find it and we will set it up again or your Shelly or whatever you have. And then we realized that, oh, actually a lot of our breaking changes is because people will... Are, ad are adding support to having like go from one device, support multiple devices or these kind of things. And so when we go for a config flow, Home Assistant is responsible for how it is written to disk. So Home Assistant knows exactly the configuration format. And if we have to change it because we are gonna support multiple devices, we can actually migrate that data because we own how it is stored. If it is a configuration file, the and this is kind of silly, but we kind of, programmed our way into like a corner we can't get out of. Because if you look at configuration.yaml, we have all these advanced structures to break up your configuration files. There's packages with includes and then include their named, include their list. And there's all these different types. And what that means is that Home Assistant cannot go update your configuration file anymore because it doesn't know where your configuration file is. We would have to reverse track all your includes and then <laughs> we need to find like a YAML writer that respects your comments and respects your indentations exactly how it was. And it's just, it's impossible. I think safe mode was a really good invention. That, well, not invention, idea, right? Where Home Assistant still starts and then just goes back to a safe mode. Yeah, so safe mode was really driven uh, by the blue, right? So we had the blue in mind and we were like, okay, we're going to have a box. We're going to sell these people. Like It will actually allow more people to use Home Assistant that previously were not using Home Assistant. So how can we make sure that they can always boot and always have a UI? <laughs> that shows you just how long it takes to develop a product because <laughs> they were released a long time apart, those two things. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it took us a year to make that case for the blue. Ah. So it's, uh, I mean, a pandemic happened and like what other stuff, but yeah, it took us a year all in all to just, 
just get a case. So we're, we're, I hope our next product will not take that long. At least, I mean, we'll see. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is very tricky. It is, it's, it's fascinating, though, how thinking about from a developer perspective, how to ship something for an end user, we got a feature like that. I think that's kind of telling how created that use case. So I'm curious, let's shift gears to the personal side. Uh, if you do have some self-hosted services, what are you running on your LAN? And uh, roughly how much storage do you have on this quote-unquote LAN? So I uh, I run Unraid uh, at home, and I made a server that must have been like six, seven, eight years ago or something. Like, no, six years. It, it's getting really old. It's like a core i5 still, and I think it takes up way too much power compared to what it does. Um, <laughs> you know, and this was, I, I, I chose Unraid because this was during the beta phase of Unraid. So Unraid, beta phase of Unraid 5. And Unraid 5 was where they introduced the Docker containers. So that was like almost kind of right away, I kind of shifted into like this perfect world of having all these containers at home. And so I'm actually still the maintainer of the Home Assistant core template for Unraid. Love that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, that's how I used to run Home Assistant for a long time. I was like, I just have my container at home. Um, and then I have like, I have Plex running and some other stuff. And then you had to go and make it a whole OS. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, so I, I, hear, I hear Plex in there. Interesting. Uh, what's that setup like? Um, I, I mean, so I mainly use Plex because um, a bunch of the. So I'm in the. I'm from the Netherlands, but I live in the United States. And there's a bunch of content from the Netherlands that is geo blocked, and so I cannot access it in the United States. Yeah. So I have to jump on a VPN and download either stuff from YouTube or whatever, and then. Um, I also don't want my son to be on YouTube like unsupervised, so that's also why I pull in some videos, and then I'll just have a Plex account for my son, and he can kind of just browse through it. I do that same thing for my kids. Yep, exactly. It's a great use case for Plex. Yeah. Well, that's and then how much storage roughly would you estimate? Um, I think it's like eight terabyte. I just got some smart errors the other day, like, like two months ago, some CRC smart check errors. So I just. But then, I mean, with Unraid, you have this parity disk. Your parity disk needs to be the same size or bigger than your biggest disk. And so my biggest disk were like four terabytes. And so it's like, well, I should really update to like eight terabyte disks. And so I only updated my parity disk now. And that took like more than a week, right? Because you have to like pre-clear it and all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and then I have, I still have one disk that is like on RiserFS. And I think <laughs> they stopped using RiserFS and they're using something else. And I was looking into should I migrate this? And then I was like, no, this is just like, no, it's, it's, too much. <laughs> it's still kind of works. And so I actually only updated the parity disk. Um, and then I've the old parity disk I installed now as in my rate, because there's only uh, a couple of errors. And then I read online that like, ah, it's okay if you have a couple of errors. And that was, that was already after I did my whole process. But of course, I mean... <laughs> that just means it's time to start shopping. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm waiting for some like deals, right? Because those discs are expensive. I was like, yeah. I, I use the Western Digital Red, I think. Are you familiar with shucking drives? Is that of any interest to you? What is that? So you buy you buy a USB hard drive from Amazon or Best Buy or something. This is Alex's favorite thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you. I've literally got one over here. It's just like it sounds. You grab the disc off Amazon and you shuck it out of the case. I paid for this Iron Wolf NAS Pro $170 for a 10 terabyte drive. Oh, wow. And all I had to do to get this was buy a USB enclosure drive and pop it out the USB enclosure. It took five minutes. 
and it's a it's a normal SATA drive. There's nothing special about it once you get it out of the case. If you look just on eBay, just for this drive on its own, I could sell this thing for three hundred and fifty dollars. In fact, why don't I do that? <laughs> there you go. You got to pay for that solar setup somehow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so the shucking technique is Alex's favorite. Sometimes it requires a little more work than that, but it is a great way to get drives at a great price. Oh, that's a good a good tip. <laughs> I, I heard you talking about solar, Alex. Yeah. We're actually working, or we, we have an intern at uh, Home Assistant, and, um, well, he actually, he's an intern at Nabucasa, but he, he he's working on Home Assistant stuff, and his focus right now is create a solution. How do we get... Use Home Assistant to give the user insight into their energy usage and allow optimizing it. So, of course, Home Assistant has been very, always very focused on home control, home automation, and it's been like our strength. History has not been our strength that much, right? Like our database has been clunky and it's pretty shitty. Um, so, I mean, we're actually changing this right now. So in the next release, it's going to be what we call statistics. And it's going to be a new table in our database. And it will take like a snapshot every hour. It will analyze like certain entities that you have. Uh, right now, it's temperature and energy. We calculate the min, the max, the mean, the sum, uh, all that stuff. And then the goal is to get like start generating dashboards on your energy usage and to show like predictions and show, you know, comparing like current period, current week to last week, these kind of things. Now, that, that second part is not going to be in the next release, but we're already going to start generating statistics in the next release. Sounds fantastic. And I'll, I'll tell you, uh, the solar company that's doing my install, it's a local one in North Carolina, they, they want to charge me $800 for energy monitoring. <laughs> so I, I'm using the, uh, I think SolarEdge is the, is the manufacturer of the panels, uh, and they have an a-, a cloud API, which Home Assistant can poll every 15 minutes, I think, to get the data. But I'm like, <laughs> it's in my house. Why do you need to go to the cloud to get this stuff? So yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking I might get one of these Shelly energy monitors. And then, yeah. you know, with everything you've just said, I think I might be in business. No kidding, right? You know, Paulus, I know too, I got to speak up for the van lifers out there. Uh, they're, the Victron Venus system speaks MQTT. And so I know there's guys out there that are pulling that information into their home assistant setup as well. Yeah. And so we're really been looking at, or we have, I don't know if you, uh, we tweeted it from the class, tweeted it uh, like two weeks ago, I think. Um, but he has already has a lot of paper mockups and he's been like playing. He has, I think he has interviewed like 20 different people and he's been really focusing on can we kind of gamify it where like, for example, <laughs> if you know your yesterday's usage and we show your today's usage, can we tell you like, hey, tone it down a little because <laughs> otherwise you're going to use more than like yesterday. I've actually had an idea. A uh, friend of mine, I've, I've just had my first kid, by the way. Um, a friend of mine was telling me they were doing nap, automating nap time, a light in the nursery with Home Assistant. You know, certain times the, if the light bulb's green, then the kid's allowed out of the room. And if it's red, they're not. I'm thinking we could play games with colored light bulbs and children at this point. That's that's where my brain's going. Oh, I do it. I do it. That's, you know, I train my kids with a series of light changes at night for bedtime and then noisemakers come on throughout the uh, rig. It's real. It's brilliant. I can't wait to play with that. And gamifying, it feels like that's an idea that could be applied to a lot of things. As somebody who uses Home Assistant to manage an off-grid setup, I would love something around energy history and a, and a gamification system that would encourage the family 
to maybe conserve energy. Because one of the things I did that really encouraged family adoption was we got a fire tablet and we just put home assistant up on it all the time. It's on the wall and it's always there. So the kids can see what's going on. And once I did that, it like it clicked for everybody. So, so, so to get something up on that screen would, man, they just take my off grid game to like the next level. <laughs> yeah, I, I think honestly, just getting people inside in it is like step one. Then all of a sudden they start to realize it's like, oh, I can actually, you know, we could generate more energy than we use today. Let's go for it. Right. And I think that's going to be fun. So my last question, I think, before we let you go, is about automations. This kind of goes back to the turnkey aspect, I suppose, and simplification. There's been a lot of work around making the YAML automation interface built into Home Assistant easier. But I always find myself, for the more complex things, reaching for Node Red. And I wondered how you felt about people like me doing that. Do you want us to all be using YAML all the time, or do you not really care? I don't really care. In fact, I think it's it's great that um, our APIs are so uh, generous that you can get anything out, that you can actually build Node-RED and do a full automation engine without being part of the Home Assistant uh, integrations. And I think that, you know, if each has their own. And I think because it is Node-RED exists, we don't have to make a lot of things ourselves, right? A lot of feature requests that would normally come to us are now, ah, I will just use Node-RED. And I just saw a pull request, I mean, I guess it's been like one and a half months ago uh, from the uh, maintainer of the Node-RED Home Assistant integration, uh, who makes like the that the nodes for uh, Node-RED. And I think he's been working on getting the triggers from the Home Assistant automation YAML into Node-RED as well. So we have a lot of uh, triggers that are not very accessible yet, a lot of advanced uh, triggers that are not accessible in Node-RED yet. But that would allow Node-RED to use anything that uh, a normal YAML automation can would be possible inside Node-RED, which I think is really cool because all of a sudden it makes Node-RED a lot more powerful or any other automation engine. And, you know, in the end, one way or the other, if you have like local control, local data, we succeed. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think my number of input booleans could could use some spring cleaning so i'm happy i'm happy to hear that <laughs> <laughs> so i mean if you buy a chromecast or whatever then sometimes you have to like connect to an access point and then like your phone and then sometimes it crashes and you're like lost and you don't know how to set up the wi-fi so we're building a bluetooth spec that is going to be built into esp home it's going to be built into the home assistant apps so if you buy like well I mean, if you, eventually we hope you're going to be able to buy ESP Home products. But if you build an ESP Home product and you give it to your friend, they would just be able to go on with Bluetooth. And we even have a web Bluetooth SDK, so you can use like a Chrome browser uh, to actually just set it up. Oh, that is cool. Yeah. I like that. Right? And that, I mean, I think I really want like, you know, they're like on Tindy, people are selling their creations. And I just want like more of that because those products are way cooler. Like, it's just like, you know, we had the tech reader last year and there's like actually for the energy meters in the Netherlands, uh, they actually have a protocol called P1 and we're going to have an ESP home-based device somebody's building that like, you know, people can just plug it in and boom, all the energy data is available in Home Assistant. So I'm sure you do, but do you, do you realize just how perfectly positioned you are to uniquely <laughs> so to do this? No, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. It's because, you know, ESP Home, like we acquired it um, mainly because like the, the original founder was like burned out and 
but he was still getting like all these donations, right? So we mm-hmm. couldn't really say, hey, we're going to hire somebody full time to make this great. Um, so we acquired it from him. We have now Jesse working on it full time. And like, you know, just we keep, you know, pumping out cool stuff. Yeah, a full time employee is going to, yeah, they've, they've got some time to fill. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, yeah, well, the thing is, because we're so big, like, you know, we are 13 people full time now. And That's crazy. 13. Yeah, thanks. Lucky and 13. <laughs> But the thing is, they work all over the place, right? Like we have the operating system guy, we have the uh, the supervisor people, we have the front end people, and so we're actually very thinly spread because there's just so much happening. Mm-hmm. For sure, yeah, yeah. It's both a lot of people from when you started at one, but it's also not a lot of people for the scope of work there is out there. Exactly. Yeah. Can you even imagine how many people you know a commercial entity? Let Let's just <laughs> hypothetically say you were owned by. EA or some some massive conglomerate like that, right? How many people would they employ to write a piece of software like Home Assistant? And it's just to me oh, that yeah. speaks to the power of open source, right? I mean, we definitely we couldn't we couldn't have things in the world like Home Assistant without open source. So no, I think so. I mean, there's just you know we if you we get people from like all over the place that are brilliant programmers, but they have their day jobs and like you know it's it's funny we have a, a couple of people. One is a CEO of a company. The other is like a director of software engineering. So he's like a manager. And like, they just don't get to code at work anymore. Right. So they come home and they're like, well, f- it. I'm going <laughs> to. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And also those sorts of people who have had a lot of training in programming and stuff like that in the past, they've got a lot that they can bring to the table, but their motivation might be sporadic. And, you know, it's not really yeah. suitable to do a full time job that way but absolutely you can contribute you know a couple of weeks worth of evenings of your brain to an open source right. project well that i mean that's how our core was originally all in threats and like we had like deadlocks all the time and then somebody came along who was who works in mozilla and uh, he had a lot of python experience he made like pylons in the past and um yeah he uh he rewrote our core to async and that's what we still run today and that's why we're so fast so that is just a random guy that came along you know what else I love as well about the the number of people you've just shared work for Nebucasa is uh, the fact that that means that somebody like a Mozilla isn't needed to come out and buy you out to keep you sustainable. It's it's a, a, a self-sustaining funding model you've created here. I think yeah. that's great too. No, it, it's been really great. I think, you know, we have no investors and no loans and these kind of stuff um, because it misaligns incentives, right? Because, you know, they want like return on investment, Um yeah, I mean it's 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 working great so far. I mean, I expect as the pandemic like wees off that maybe that people are spending less time at home, maybe spending less time on home assistant. Who knows? Um, but they might need remote access. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I I happily happily pay that because I think it's a not only is it a fantastic service and I like how you are implementing it, but I also appreciate sort of the virtuous cycle of it incentivizes the company to make home assistant better which just continues to drive more value to my subscription. And it it's legitimately one of those arrangements that I happily pay. That's awesome. Yeah, same. I don't really need it. I, I could quite happily set up my own reverse proxy with WireGuard. And, and <laughs> in fact, I used to. And then Nebu Casa came yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. What's the origin yeah. of the name, by the way? That that word Nebu is uh, is quite unusual. So Nabu is, uh, it was some god of the wisdom in some uh, somewhere in some religion or language. 
Um, and so, so then we had like the word. Out. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> and then we also have the URL nabu.casa, right? Because that actually, we, we kind of settled on nabu and then I was looking at domains and all of a sudden I said nabu casa and I was like, that's it. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially comes down to wise house. Is that uh, a tra- that's great? That is good. Yeah, and now we're we're waiting. Razor had a smartwatch called Nabu in uh, 2015 or 16 or something. We're just waiting for their trademark to lapse, and then maybe we can <laughs> get a little more a little more mileage out of that name. <laughs> that's great. I mean, I know I know lawyers are have a reputation, but can you confuse a house automation system and uh, a watch? Maybe. You know, mm-hmm. smartwatches, smartwatches you can talk to nowadays. Um, and so... Yeah, who wants to even worry about a fight? Why just... Yeah, yeah. Well, boss, thank you so much for joining us and updating in on these things. Um, and also thank you and thanks to the team for making a piece of software that has improved my family's quality of life on a daily basis. I just Not much ch- actually touches our lives in that way. So we're just really grateful for that too. Awesome. Well, you're welcome. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Paulus. Now, we're not going to actually do any feedback this week, just in the interest of time. But next episode, we're going to discuss the distributed file system question that Chris posed last week. We've had lots of feedback in the mailbag about that one. Oh, I can't wait to see what people have suggested. I feel like I'd be cheating if I read ahead, but now I kind of want to go in there and take a look. (laughs) But I'll wait. I'll wait. I'll wait for the show. Um, so that way my reaction is fresh. Awesome. Yeah, if you if you have uh, any tips, selfhoster.show slash contact on how, how you could take advantage of the random amounts of free space on the hard drives all around your LAN. And thank you to our members at selfhoster.show slash SRE. And thanks to our sponsor, Cloud Guru. You can find them on social media everywhere that's basically a social media site. They're just slash a cloud guru. It's really simple. And as always, you can find me over on Twitter at Ironic Badger. And the show is selfhosted.show slash contact. Indeed, I'm over on the Twitter as well at Chris LAS. And the podcast is over there too at Self Hosted Show for news and announcements. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was selfhosted.show slash 45. All right. So you were talking to me last week about this Blackstone griddle thing. Yeah, yeah. But it was my birthday last week and I, I might have splurged a little or, well, my mother-in-law might have splurged a little on a, a propane powered pizza oven. Oh, really? Congratulations and, and happy uh, birthday again. That's awesome. This thing, this thing's a serious pizza oven. Could you mind if I mention what the price range is? Go ahead. <laughs> Well, I'll just say it's above $400. How about that? I won't say any more than that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she must love me, right? Or she's planning to come over and get a bunch of free pizza. <laughs> it could be a long-term play. <laughs> this thing makes incredible pizza. So let me let me tell you about it, right? It's Okay, yeah. It fits anywhere from like a 12 to 15-inch pizza stone inside, something like that. Awesome. And uh, it, it's powered through propane, like I said. It takes maybe 10 to 15 minutes to get up to temperature, but... In that 15 minutes, it goes from ambient all the way up to 7, 750 Fahrenheit in the middle of the pizza stone. But the best part is that it's got a rotisserie mode. So the actual pizza stone itself rotates. So you get that perfect cook. Yeah. And I don't know if you've, <laughs> if you've ever done a pizza stone in like a wood-fired oven or something like that. Oh, yeah. The front of the oven is open and that's kind of a problem for cooking, right? It doesn't Things don't cook evenly and the front's always burnt and the back's always cold. So you have to take the, the pizza out halfway through and open the front, you know, if it's on my green egg or whatever, my Kamado Joe. 
you have to open the lid, lose a bunch of temperature, and then it just the second half of the cook's never quite as good. So this thing solves that problem. And for like a weekday pizza night, all I've got to do is make some dough at lunchtime, which takes like 10 minutes, uh, and then build the pizza. And within you know half an hour of actual cooking and making and eating time, I've got fresh pizza. You're really making your own dough? Yeah, it's not that difficult. That's great. I mean, I just, I'm trying to picture it, right? Like, I'm just picturing, like, you get, like, at the end of a task in the middle of your day, and you're like, okay, I got, like, 15 minutes. I'll go make some dough. <laughs> I'm just picturing that as a visual, and it really makes me chuckle. <laughs> you know me. I like to self-host things. This is my this is my recipes app. It, I don't use it as much as I should, but this is my Italian pizza dough recipe, which I think I got from the New York Times cooking section. Uh, this is an Italian pizza dough, so you have to use double O flour, uh, which is quite light, and it's it's sort of an Italian speciality flour, which you can pick up at most supermarkets. Remind me what, what uh, recipe app this is. I love the layout. This is Chowdown. Ah, right. Yeah, it's just it's just missing like a pretty major thing, though. What's that? Well, it just doesn't have like like a blog, like three paragraphs explaining the history of the dough and talking about how your grandparents <laughs> immigrated from one country to another and found this recipe. Like, I, I, I need pages of scroll here. I'm not used to this. It just, it's all right there. It's too easily laid out. Exactly. That's exactly why I wanted a self-hosted recipes app. <laughs> yeah, this is a good idea. I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. So if anybody that's interested wants to go and see Chowdown in use, you can go and look at my pizza dough recipe. There you go. That's great right there. Well, I've modified the theme slightly so that search is always visible because, you know me, I love me some fuzzy search. So, like, if you're if you're in a recipes page and you search, it kind of jankily presents all the, the results, like, above the image of the dough or whatever. I mean, it works. It's fine. But it could, it could be better if you're a web front-end developer, which I'm not. <laughs> uh, I made it work. That's all I care about. 